Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. All right, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. I am your co-host, David Roberts, here with your main host, Becca Epley, (laughs) and we are honored to be here this evening with my friend and in many ways an inspiration of mine, Doug Padgett. Doug has more than a few uh, titles. Uh, Currently, he is the founding pastor, current pastor, possibly soon to be pastor emeritus of Solomon's Porch uh, in the Minneapolis area. He is the executive director of Vote Common Good, which you're going to get to hear a little bit more about, the founder of Greater Things, which you'll also get to hear more about, Mm -hmm. and the author of the recently released Outdoing Jesus, which as per the pattern, you will get to hear a little bit more about. Uh, Doug, thank you for joining us this evening. It is uh, the highlight of my day. Thank you. Now, Doug, we uh, before we get into kind of the meat and potatoes of everything, there is a question that we ask, I think every single one of our guests so far, maybe, maybe one I think we skipped, but uh, and that question is uh, inevitably. I think this is particularly poignant for you, considering your your legacy in this kind of progressive Christian, progressive uh, faith, kind of post evangelical space. Inevitably, when your work, your legacy, your exploits attract the attention of the capitalist machine that is Hollywood, and they see a money making opportunity by your life rights to create a biopic about your life. Who do you envision could be a combination of people, could be a single person, could be yourself if you're feeling so inspired, but who do you envision would be cast as Doug Padgett in this story about the things that you've done throughout the last few decades? Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about that, what the after-school special of the Doug Padgett life would be and who would would play me. And and I've been asking around to friends, like, who, who do you think would be and and almost everyone uh, to a person says well because of the sheer physical and sort of mm. spiritual resemblance that Bradley Cooper would be the the choice so of course I, I'm just assuming that's that's who it would be and uh, you know that that edict of Jesus to love yourself would be much easier for me if if I could watch myself being portrayed by certainly Bradley certainly now I, I'm going to do something I haven't My given crush is <laughs> is, is I'm going to give you the opportunity to do something I haven't given anyone else the opportunity to do because your story I think in the eyes of many kind of coincides with a handful of other individuals. Uh, names come to mind like uh, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Dan Kimball. I'm going to give you the opportunity to cast some of your co-conspirators. <laughs> Holy moly! Uh, that guy from uh, you know John Locke from Lost, uh, okay. from Brian McLaren. Obviously, yep, yeah. From Brian McLaren, uh, <laughs> yes, who's also yes, now in yes. in um, in that in that show. Uh, oh, what is what's that? What is that? What is that show oh. I love so? Anyway, uh, yeah. So that guy uh, for him uh, for for Danny Kimball. I don't know the guy from Stray Cats. Um, <laughs> with, uh, Brian, somebody. Yeah, yeah. For Tony, I, I think it might be uh, who who is the um, Tommy Lee Jones. I okay. think play it. Would would, would play okay. it. Would play okay. a good a good curmudgeon-y And I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make you do one more. Him. And then Brad, I would be Bradley Bradley Cooper, of course. Of um, course. I'm gonna make you do one more just because I want to give him a hard time. 
I need you to cast Mason Men- Meningo. <laughs> that is that is a great one. Who would who would play Mason? Um, that that uh, that guy from uh, Parks and Rec. Who's also in uh, Big Little Lies? Yay. Oh yeah, he plays. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, what is his name? That um, guy. That guy. I can't believe his name has escaped me. He's Ben in Parks and Rec. But anyway, everyone yeah, knows Park, about Park, Parks and Rec. Well, perfect. This is yeah. great. I can't yeah. wait. To- I spent a lot of time thinking about television shows and who would play whom. Perfect. Well, we have a lot mm-hmm. to talk about, uh, as as suggested by uh, some of the different titles you hold. So, Doug, we'll let you pick. What do you What do you want to talk about first? About all the things that you're doing right now. Yeah, let's talk about the book Outdoing Jesus. Yeah, uh, I'm spending a lot of time around that book right now. Between that and, I mean, all, all the things I'm doing have a lot, but I'm on a bit of a book tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of authors, I, I spent a lot of time writing this book, and then it, it goes away from you for for me. It was about nine months or a year while it goes through its publishing um, refinement, and then it came back to me this summer and was released on August 20th. And I've really, I've really become a fan of it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'd forgotten how much I liked it. I, I sort of get tired of things mm-hmm. um, that I worked on for a long time, and I, I felt really tired of this book when mm-hmm. it came out. And uh, and I think that was good because I, I was I was not picky or fighting the publisher about we did a title change and a subtitle change, mm-hmm. and and because I was kind of like you know what I don't even really like that <laughs> book, so it's kind of fine. Uh, <laughs> it was originally called Greater Than, and it came back uh, with uh, you know they suggested a which is a much better title called Outdoing Jesus. Because my former subtitle was How Ordinary People Are Outdoing Jesus, Why It's Good News, and How You're One of Them. Mm. Um, And it bases off Jesus's phrase, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than Mm. these. So I think Jesus's imagination for humanity, that as a master spiritual teacher in the way of humanity, you uh, are supposed to do and outdo the things Jesus is doing. Every every master teacher would desire for the follower to, mm. to do to do the greater expression of their of that way of life according to themselves. So anyway, I, I I've kind of fallen back in love with the thing, and uh, I'm glad that it, it had its own had it's had its own little life away, and I'm glad that it came back. And so I'm, I'm I like it a lot. I've been talking mm-hmm. about it a lot. I had to reread it to remember. <laughs> um, you know what was in it, which sounds strange to some people, but if you've if you've written things, you you might experience that kind. Of, you know, you think you'd be so close to it, how could you forget what was in it? But re- in in rereading it, I'd forgotten about whole stories that had happened to me that I included <laughs> oh, in the book. Wow. I, I I have a very f- a very fickle memory, so so I'm I'm really proud of the book, uh, and and I really like it, and I think uh, that if people read it, and wh- whether they're uh, spiritual, whether they're Christian, mm. whether they're into Jesus or not. I think people can find a lot of connection to it. What was one of the favorite things that you had forgotten about that when you reread it really resonated with you again? Yeah, Becca, that's a great question. In the book, what I do is I take these seven miraculous signs that the Gospel of John attributes to Jesus. And I suggest that by design in the gospel, they're meant to be a part of a creation narrative Mm -hmm. of a way of humanity. So the Gospel of John mimics or shadows the creative uh, narratives in the book of Genesis. So Genesis starts with a creation poem, then moves to seven days of creation. John starts with a creation poem Mm. and then goes into seven miraculous Mm. signs, all of which are are independent to the gospel Mm. of John. So the miracles that are there aren't in the others, or if they are in the others, they're told in such a different Mm -hmm. way that they really Mm -hmm. conclude conclude differently. So I take those stories as seven sort of lenses into the, into a way of what humanity should look like. What, like what would, what would the created new humanity 
sort of uh, have as its features. So I tell these ordinary these stories of ordinary mm-hmm. people and uh, doing some extraordinary things, and reading those stories, um, re- reading about scientific discoveries, mm-hmm. and reading about acts of empathy, and just kind of remembering. Yeah the research that I did mm. on uh, how people get blindness back or what does it mean for a person to overcome a limitation mm. that would hold them to the ground or what does it mean to, to make fevers go away or the alchemy that there is in making that which is undrinkable or that which is forbidden drinkable mm. and doing away with limitations. So, so it, it's great. And then kind of, even though it wasn't a story, there's this one phrase that I've really, really liked a lot that the gospel of John's miraculous signs mm. don't proclaim the breaking of the laws of physics. They proclaim the breaking open of human potential. Oh, I like that. Because in the miracles, in the miraculous signs, frankly, no, Jesus isn't really the star of any of the miracles. The people who are in them have not, they, they don't have any relationship, mm-hmm. any understanding with, any knowledge of Jesus most mm-hmm. of the time. It's really not about exalting Jesus's uh, mm, reputation. Yeah. It's really about the person having an experience that takes them above the circumstance mm. they find themselves in. Whether that's and the, I mean the seven are you know, it's 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 water to wine, yeah, it's healing yeah. of a boy who has a fever, it's a man by a pool, it's a person who's mm. born blind, it's somebody getting to the other side of a lake, it's people not having enough food to eat, and it's stopping a death that should have never happened in the mm-hmm. first place. So these are the uh, bits, and then I was reminded that the that the, the seventh sign, you know, the, the one that involves Lazarus, which is in a lot of ways the most spectacular uh, and um, the most peculiar, right. in the sense that it's not in the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell any st- a story anything mm-hmm. like it. They, they have a parable about someone named Lazarus who dies, but that. It's not a character yeah. that has sisters. It's not a friend of Jesus's. It's a parable. In this case, that's uh, always talked about, or I, I'd always heard it talked about as the resurrection of, mm. of mm. Lazarus. And as it turns out, it's not a resurrection at all by any you know decent definition of a resurrection. It's a resuscitation. Yeah. Right? Lazarus doesn't, the story doesn't tell of Lazarus experiencing anything that people who hold to resurrection are kind of into. And the thing that really catches me about it, I think what Jesus is doing in the story is actually telling the sisters and telling the people around and thereby John telling the readers through this story that what what we need to do is set aside a narrative of future resurrection so that we don't put off to the future the responsibility Mm -hmm. that we have to act Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's not doubling down on a theory of afterlife resurrection. He's doing away with it. Mm -hmm. And then he says, instead of waiting for that, Let's sure. go to the tomb and solve the problem here and now, and not wait till another time mm. in another place. That's been a—I mean, that's that's kind of a big doozy of a, yeah. of, a of a flip around of what the what the Lazarus story yes. is about. So, those, so those are, you can tell I get a little bit excited about oh, no, that stuff. Yeah, um, that's awesome because I'm rattling rattling on about it. But I, I like that I like that a lot. I think it's I think it's a powerful story. Right? So as you talk about it, I mean, I'm thinking this. You know, you know, I work at a kind of a progressive, inclusive, kind of evangelical, stylistic church. You know, I'm here in sermon series. I'm here in teaching series. I'm here, and we can go through the Book of John, and and, and Doug's kind of written written seven weeks worth of worth of sermons for us. But who else? Like, you know, you mentioned a moment ago that you you know you think that you know Christian or non Christian, you know, you know, you know, kind of anyone can find uh, maybe something valuable, something meaningful in this book. But as you were writing it, did you feel like you had a target audience? You know, you know, who 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 is this book for? Uh, I do have a target audience in my mind. Um, I literally picture people. Sometimes I keep their pictures around. Mm. Uh, it's easier now than it used to be. So I can really think about that person. Sometimes I write in public mm. spaces. Mm. 
so that I can look at people and re- read a line that I'm writing and sort of look up and think, if I said mm. that to that person, could I say that with a straight face? Could I say yeah. that with, with a sense of honesty? Do I think that person would care at all that I just wrote that sentence? Like, So I'm checking it in real time all the time. So I do have people in, in mind. Uh, in a large category, so I, you know, I assign certain names to that. But as a large category, uh, mm-hmm. people that struggle with with miracles was a major uh, kind of person I was thinking about because sure. I don't buy miracles as breaking the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think any of us are helped with exceptional moments, I, and, and I just I just think humanity doesn't need mm-hmm. stories that are unrepeatable. We we only need stories that are repeatable. But as it turns out, uh, exceptional things become normative things, yes. right? So I think I've got little bits in there about, you know, like I'm a, I'm a runner, so I, I know lots of stories about runners, but the, uh, breaking of the four-minute mile was a real milestone that a human being could fling their body, you know, for under four minutes and complete mm-hmm. the distance of a mile. Mm-hmm. And that was a really big deal. But within a year of someone doing that, like seven people had done that. And now that level of speed of running a mile wouldn't qualify mm-hmm. you to be on the Olympic uh, marathon uh, squad. Like it's, it's not even yeah. a, the thing that would seem impossible yeah. has now become something that's not even the standard of, of mm. exceptional uh, action. So that's what's going on, right? So people who struggle with miracles and the story of Jesus struggle with miracles. And then I was trying to reconcile in my own life, the sort of the, the techno advances, scientific mm. and technology advances that I think sit at the center of so much of the goodness that we see in the world. And some of it having to do with like what we actually make and create and other kinds of technological advances in thinking and in social structures and urban design and so on. Those are manifestations of a greater than experience of these miracles that, uh, as my friend Samir likes to put it, he says, he said, after reading the book, I now imagine Jesus saying with longing in his voice, with you know a sense of wonder, Jesus saying, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing mm-hmm. and even greater works than these. And with a tone of like, and man, wouldn't that be great to see what those are going to be? <laughs> like, these are just the early foreshadowing, right? Yeah. These are just the, just, just the beginning of birth pain. So, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, how do you connect the Jesus narrative to a life of improvement, of humanistic desire and design and of progress? Because so many people have a very refined version of a story of Jesus that has an apocalyptic ending to the world, that there's a problem to solve Mm -hmm. uh, kind of of narrative rather than, you know, like, what do you do when when we recognize that things are are better? They're they're not good yet. Mm Mm-hmm in our planet. They're not good in our social structures. We're not, we're not satisfied. They're not perfect or anything close to it. Nobody's even demanding for that. Uh, improvements always in front of us, but they are better. And if you have a storyline in which things have to get worse for Jesus's story to have any, any moral or spiritual uh, teaching, that's really a problem. And look, I mean, I don't have a Jesus fetish where I feel like I have to save Jesus for the, uh, for the masses. I just think Jesus is teaching about how we should live in the world, whether they're his, his words or the way that the mm-hmm. stories around his life are constructed inside these, these gospels. They're actually quite helpful. And there's not a lot of help out there, frankly. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, I've got my own little, you know, connection to the Jesus story that I'm trying to make some sense of. So <laughs> I'm going to jump off the deep end here and just say, so there are lots of people, especially in Western civilization here that would say things are getting drastically worse right now and that they are proving that things have to get worse leading up to an apocalyptic style ending. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. with what you just said and that 
thought in mind, how would you respond? Well, yeah, I think the apocalyptic narrative has been um, around human thinking and human civilizations uh, from the beginning of our sort of structuring our, our, our mind about the future. And so I think, I think that's, I think that's uh, available in a lot of spaces. And religion is only one of the apocalyptic narratives. Mm. There's a techno-apocalyptic narrative. There's a, a, a climate change apocalyptic mm. narrative. There's a mass extinction via a, yeah, a collision yeah. of, of an asteroid to the Earth. There's uh, a virus. One. like The, the human uh, worry that... Uh, this is all mm-hmm. going to end <clears throat> is super important for us to have because each of our lives are going to come to mm-hmm. an yes. end, yeah. right? So, and so the ability to project that thing that is true in each of us onto all of us, mm-hmm. okay, that's a natural, that's a natural function. Um, is it the only one? And should we actually be thinking about our lives as ending or not is a, is a big debate of the philosophers and religion. And I think Jesus's uh, teachings have a lot to say about that. And, and so I think we're called to set aside the natural impulses of an apocalyptic narrative. I think that's one of the, it's one of the great temptations almost that, that human consciousness then has to struggle with. The ego. The, the ego, mm-hmm. some people call it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do we do about that and, and how do we engage it? And, and some of the best ways, I think, to engage the apocalyptic narratives of our lives is to consider some alternatives yeah. to that. That's part of what uh, religions can offer, and they can, or they could offer the alternative to that. And I mean, Jesus is the, the brand of Jesus is is uh, deeply attached mm-hmm. to both of those. Um, I think the Gospels have chosen a side. And the side that they've chosen is to to be an alternative to an apocalyptic narrative. So let's use that as a jumping off point because you know if this is kind of the the trajectory or uh, the telos of the of the book. Then I assume in many ways that it is both born out of, but also continues to inform the work that you're still doing. And so whether you know, you know mm-hmm. I think we could talk about. Uh, vote common good, uh, but then I also think we could talk about the work that you've done, you know, uh, over the last couple couple decades uh, with Solomon's Porch. There, as you know, when it comes to, I think in both instances, in a sort of you know, kind of overlapping but different way, offering the sort of alternative that you're talking about, mm. as opposed to kind of embracing this mm-hmm. kind of doom and gloom nihilistic apocalyptic narrative. You know, it's an opportunity to tell a different story. To claim a different narrative, and so I'll throw I'll, I'll throw it to you again. You know whether you want to talk about vote common good first or or Solomon Porch more broadly first, but mm-hmm. uh, but let's shift the conversation to talking about kind of just practical ways in which the alternative story, the alternative narrative that you're talking about might play itself out for people. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a discipline, right? Right? It's a practice to be able to say um, what do we count, uh, what do we pay attention to, what mm. what are the things we keep track of. Um, I, I, I'm temperamentally like it's kind of curious. On the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram eight, oh, okay. which can come with a kind of angst yeah. to it and kind of a mean, kind of a meanness, right? So, like, I get that, uh, but but I also have sort of a, a predisposition to being an opportunity enthusiast and a, and a and a future enthusiast and a possibility enthusiast, and like just because I think that you know if if you count the right things, the, it looks pretty looks pretty mm-hmm. obvious yeah. that. Uh, 
you know, there were overcomers, right? I, I think, and I, I don't know, maybe I kind of tapped into this. I think it was in, in like seventh grade or ninth grade or something when we hit school sex ed and they kind of talked about how, uh, you know, male sperm is, there's a whole bunch of them and one of them's, you know, the racing <laughs> and you know, the one that was you kind of got yeah, there first. Yeah. And then, you know, like what it took for you to, to be born and, and to be alive and like, I mean, just that, right? Yes, things are going to end. Yes, we live in struggle. Yes, things are difficult. But you're literally here. Mm. And like that's right. So if you count that as if you were to weight that in the uh, on the scales of uh, do things work out or not, that's sort of one of those. And, you know, I get a lot of pushback from people. And I think it's good pushback on this, that, that maybe the privilege that I experience in the society that I live in with the social location that I have dictates a lot of that. I think that's I think that's that's probably true, but I think a lot of social locations and a lot of times and a lot of mm, places mm. in the world people have concluded similarly. So I don't think it's only a result of that. Mm. I just think that it's uh, that's a that's an additive. That's not a that's not the cause of it. Jesus as someone who didn't have a lot of advantages in his society. I think is the, sure. the chief yeah. proclaimer of you know saying blessed are the poor in mm. spirit. Uh, you know, blessed are the merciful. Right, like. Like, like even, even in this and that. And so I, I think there's some practices that kind of, that kind of help people do that. This, this, all this business about gratitude and breathing is a really big thing. I think that we're kind of finding in our society, mm-hmm. right? Like recognition, noticing what's, what's often re- referred to as, as kind of acknowledgement yes. mm-hmm. and, and awareness, mm-hmm. right? Just doing awareness. And, and it just kind of means counting all the things and noticing all the things instead of some of the things. So, so I think the ability to advance our awareness is the kind of the, key spiritual activity mm. of all that, you know, of a spiritually alive person is that you just pay attention to more things. Um, what, what I think Jesus's phrase of, you know, uh, have life and life abundantly is somewhere tied up in that, yeah. in that kind of a notion. And I also don't believe in an afterlife, right? So uh, by, by any like classic sense yeah. of the term, right? Like I don't, I don't believe that the way uh, we should think about what happens to us after we die is that there's a, a, a reality that looks like a version mm-hmm. of this. But yeah better uh, there, there's some experience of the of human consciousness that that is post this life i think that's one of the things that this life doesn't allow us to have any real understanding of is what that next life is so yeah i would agree i would agree yeah. I, I feel i feel like we've created that narrative especially because well honestly we're afraid we're afraid yeah. of what's after and if it can look like something that we have um, conscious awareness of now then that gives us comfort in holding the tension whether that's a false mm. narrative or not so. i just kind of love this this yeah. is an unexpected tangent but this is exactly the conversation that i'm having with um so so my role at, at watershed which is the church i work at here in charlotte is my primary role is as as the youth pastor student pastor and on this sunday it'll be this will have passed, I'm sure, by the time we actually release this episode. But this upcoming Sunday at the time of recording will be our fourth and final week of having this exact discussion of kind of talking about oh. talking about sort of the, the narratives about what happens after we die that we were raised with and just kind of asking the question, you know, you know, do we believe this because it's just what we've always been told to believe? And then, you know, kind of what is this grounded in and what would it mean for our life now? if things were different than what we've been raised to expect. And so we've explored different faith traditions Mm. and kind of different alternatives, uh, including what if there's literally nothing, no consciousness, nothing, just total annihilation, you know, kind of the non-theistic, purely materialistic uh, version. It's been really interesting to kind of just listen to the students wrestle and, and, you know, kind of just consider what implications it would have for the here and now uh, if a different way of imagining what happens after Mm. they die is, is true. So, Tangent sidebar, but 
Interesting to have you bring that up. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, well, it's not only in the mind of fifteen-year-olds, mm-hmm. right? It's in the mind of fifty-three-year-olds, right? <laughs> what do we? How do we consider those things? And because the, Pete Rollins said, said this really smart thing one time, probably more than once, but <laughs> I can't I can't confirm all of that. But one time he said this really smart thing uh, where he said, "Look, death doesn't mm. bookend life; mm. death inhabits life." Mm-hmm. I stole that line and put it in, in the chapter on, on Lazarus. And I, I don't think I quoted him. It was one of those <laughs> things where, like, like the first time you hear it, you say Pete Rollins yes, said, yep. and the next time you yeah. say it, you say I've heard it said, and then the third time you say as I say, and yes, the next time you yes. say. It. Exactly. Like creativity is forgetting where you found it. <laughs> um, but but that idea that right, like oh, let's let's not act as if we don't know what death is. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing it sort of regularly in an ongoing r- reality that things are coming and going and dying and birthing, and that's that's kind of alive in all the all all the actions. So the after this, I, I don't know. That's that's curious. I'm, I'm a big meatloaf fan um, not so much the food as the, sure. as the singer. singer yeah and there's this great great meatloaf line uh yeah he didn't write any of the any of the lyrics but he can just sing them in a way that makes it memorable and, mm. and the, the phrase is do you believe in life after birth i think the degree to which you believe in life after birth uh, informs a lot of your sense of life mm. after death it, that we, we just have so many deaths that we pay attention to and that we know about. So I think we should take it more seriously. I think we should be much more death aware and conscious. And look, and I'm someone who doesn't like talking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I really don't like talking about death at all. I just interviewed somebody mm-hmm. who's written a book about grief and death and she's kind of a death, uh, she's a death guru, a death doula. Oh, I think I saw her the other day. Yeah. Online. Yeah. 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 yeah fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic stuff. I'm like, I am so <laughs> yeah. glad you write this stuff because I'm just, you know, I was nearly having a panic attack during the interview and she's, she's tremendous. It's, it's fantastic. I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but I used to have it sitting here. But anyway, uh, so death and struggle and, and downsidery and all that stuff is, and I'm a minute, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm a minimizer. Right. So uh, I tend to, I have some friends that I've worked with and uh, what I was just saying the other day, like, you know, you use the word just uh, as this qualifier so much that it's just, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really a problem. Like, I'll, I'll be like, look, it's just, it's just 15 miles. Like we can, we can walk there. Right. And they're like, drop the word just it's 15 miles and it, you know but so i have this kind of minimizing mm. of the struggle of the problem uh, because i think the human capacity to overcome so that's what i mean by the kind of built-in built-in optimism but you know no one's getting out of this thing alive yeah, right. right so we should buckle in to some sort of sense of meaning around that and also not talk about it all the time right there are seasons at which you at which you talk about it and it's it's much more difficult for people who struggle with their life or struggle with uh, suicidal ideation yeah. or with self-harm narratives it's a re- it's a real thing and uh, the human the frailty of the human mind and the frailty of the human experience uh, and yet the stick-to-itiveness of life <laughs> you know they're in conflict with each other sometimes so for those of us who have grown up in households or i grew up southern baptist dad was a campus minister mm-hmm. but very much with mm-hmm. this ideology of you know there's hard things life is hard but we just have to save people and get to heaven and that is pounded over and over and over and over again into and i have since my thought process has and beliefs have done a 360. But mm. when you're stuck in that narrative all the time, mm-hmm. the thought of anything else 
death is just so prevalent. Yeah. And yet that is, I feel like that's right. a good portion of some of the more fundamental evangelical churches. How do we step yeah. out of that? Because that's also a fear hold, you know, or a death grip on the fear of like, this has to be the truth. And I'd be curious what your thoughts on how do we gently, but with certainty say, there's so much more you're missing mm-hmm. out on what, I mean, of course we can, you know, our lives can demonstrate that as well. But I don't know, I just think of my family and I feel like a lot of times most of their days are consumed with fear and instead of, yeah. I have, since I have grown myself in the spiritual realm, I have more peace in the last 10 years than I did in my first 30 years. Yeah. Wow. You know, how do you help somebody? Mm-hmm. I think first you tell the truth and you start with yours and then you go, you know, mm-hmm. and you try to widen out. Um, so I think telling that story and talking about that, that more often and really having an attitude of what, you know, in, in improv comedy, so so essential the the mm. yes and rather than the no but uh, construct. So, because the the function of a belief in a person's life is often radically different than the nature mm. of the belief or the content of the belief. Like I, I think the question uh, that we ask of one another sometimes formally the way I'm about to say it, but very often you know, in, in lots of other ways than the formal ask is, why does that matter to you? Why is that important to you? Not, uh, what is it you think about this? Or tell me, you know, explain to me how you did, show, yeah, you know, show yeah. your math or uh, show me how this is consistent, right? Because, I mean, who cares if someone's belief system is consistent or not, really? You know, Pete Holmes has this stand-up comedy bit that I saw on an airplane. He's like, you know, I said, I said, all my atheist friends and, and non-theist yes. friends, and I like know who he's talking about. It. <laughs> like, <clears throat> um, you know, they'll say like, none of the, you know, this stuff you guys talk about in your religion and all that stuff and it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in classic Pete Holmes style, he's like, you know, what doesn't make any sense. All of this, you're standing <laughs> on a ball, you're upside down, hanging off a planet. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Everything doesn't make any electricity, doesn't make sense. Like, makes sense. What do you like? Uh, like, what since when did we, uh, you know, <laughs> require that? Yeah, for sort of how we get along. So, uh, just giving people a bit of a break that the the, the beliefs that we hold, so mm-hmm. the family you're, you know, sort mm-hmm. of d- describing here gently is uh, okay, there's a lot of fear. So when you're around people for whom fear is there is 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 a motivator, the question of why is that an important belief for you to to hold that that helps you be afraid, right? Because fear is it's a powerful stabilizer, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I think you know just, I've been helped with this for the, from the Enneagram um, that I think there's kind of three major questions that people uh, or th- three major responses people have to stress. There's anger. I come mm-hmm. from that. I'm in that triad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that part of the triad, right? Where I get angry fast or whatever. And it didn't really mean anything. Uh, anxiety, which is fear mm-hmm. uh, is, yeah. is one. And then shame is the other. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think they go, you know, you see these all over society and culture all the way back to the ancient uh, narratives of, you know, creation narratives where in the Genesis story, mm-hmm. you see, shame in the garden you see fear did god really say and you see anger of brother killing brother yeah right so like okay well there's there's our plot lines are are you fear are you anger are you shame and you know lots of us are a you know pretty wicked little combination of those yeah uh, that, that come together so 
the question becomes how did how is that serving you like what 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 is that giving to you what's the what's the upside of that and for a lot of us what this means and Becca this is where I think your question is so smart is you have to ask yourself like why does this new belief serve me the way it does what's mm-hmm. the what's the upside I'm getting out of this right mm-hmm. that relief you're saying like wow I felt like I was under such fear now I feel like I'm in in relief well, you could sort of like explain the details of the belief mm-hmm. system as you can best grasp it, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. But why is this? Wh- why does this matter to you now? Right? That you wh- wh- whatever it is that you feel like you're freed, or that heaven's not the point, mm-hmm. or something. And man, so so like I, I, I was debating hell with somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a formal formal debate setting. Okay, way back in the day. So we were. It was like um, there's an audience, and then o- opening. Uh, statements and then rebuttal mm-hmm. statements and then interactions and I realized in the midst of the conversation about hell I I think the other person Chris was talking when it sort of struck me mm-hmm. kind of dawned on me for the first time that when I'm saying I don't believe that there's an afterlife of punishment he and the audience was hearing there's no response to injustice or evil. Yes. Yeah. No one's going to do anything about it. Right. And I was like, oh, that's why hell matters to them. Mm-hmm. Because it's in that construct that someone's going to do something about it. Right. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, that's sort of what's what's up here. Right. <laughs> and, and realizing what I don't like about hell is I that's not a problem I have. So there's a solution I don't need because it's to a problem mm. that I don't that, that, that I don't hold. So I, I think, you know, it, kind of fundamentally it's getting into empathy as to why is this sure. an important idea for, for another person. Uh that's just exhausting though. I mean think about how long we've just been talking about this and like, geez, who's got the energy to do this time and time and time again? And sometimes, you know, sometimes people like me, right, you know, we're I'm just stubborn too, right? So I will hold to an idea a whole lot longer than it served me just because it serves me to have been right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? There's that ego thing or pride or whatever. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. To your point, I mean, we've been talking about this for a few minutes. Let's talk about what's going on with you right now. So you've got, you've got this church, Minneapolis, Almond's Porch, that you've been the pastor of and the founder of for a few, um, is, it, is it right to say a few decades? Yeah, two. Or, a yeah, couple yeah, decades. A few decades. A couple decades. And uh, recently in the last two months, I think, uh, you announced that you're going to be uh, retiring from that position. Uh, there's a search process going on to, to find a new lead pastor at Solomon's Porch. Uh, so, to so talk about that, um, we'll, in a moment we can talk about what you're going to be doing now, kind of what you're going to be focusing mm-hmm. on uh, going forward. But talk about that legacy. Talk about that uh, the experience of, of kind of passing the torch of this thing that's that's, that's kind of been your your focus for so long and, and what it means to yeah. you, the legacy of Solomon's Porch, really anything anything that comes to mind in, in that. Yeah, I'm, it's been 20 years. This, it's a church that a number of us who have been friends for a couple of decades it, tried to innovate. Like we were trying to respond to our own situation of could we live in a faith? Could, could we find and develop a faith mm. that was meaningful to us and good for the world? Uh, we sort of have a little slogan about being a benefit and blessing to all the world. That's been around for a long time, and we've been trying to figure out how do we organize our lives in that. And you know, it's curious because 
there there are days where where I it's not possible for me to know why we started mm. the church when we did 20 years ago, right? Partly because memories just doesn't serve well. And, and also there were so many things that came together, right? Mm-hmm. Describing any one of them just doesn't, just, just doesn't yeah. do service. Right. Um, but, but we were, we felt like we were up to something. We felt like we were trying to figure some things out. I was trying to grow as a leader. Uh, we were trying mm. to, we felt like uh, things that exist in the world uh, were made by mm. people. So we should make something. It was, and there was a whole time, I think this is still true, but kind of maker's culture and kind of living in a space where where deep innovation comes from those who are who are making the innovation. And so we wanted to do that. And we, we thought we were being creative and we thought we were being impassioned. Whether or not by anybody else's standards we were or not, really didn't care. Like we, It felt like it to us, like we were sort of up to something. Mm, yeah. Solomon's Porch has always had way more attention than mm-hmm. some conditions would demand or allow. Uh, sometimes I joke that it's, you know, it's the biggest ball of twine of churches, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like somehow, somehow famous that you go in and you're like, oh, it's a big ball of twine. Like, like, why does everybody know about this place? Like, why was it in the cover of the New York times? And why, why is it in all these books? And why are people in re- doing, you know, PhD research coming around and looking at this? Why are there television film crews in our building filming us doing this little thing mm-hmm. we're doing with our couple hundred people? Like, What's going on, right? Um, uh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so Salma's Porch has, has held a curious place uh, in society, and I and I've been there for all of that time, and, and it's become clear to me that somebody else should take on the role that that I've had there, and I should get out of the way. Partly because the people in our community, yeah, I feel deeply loved there. I love the people there. The affection is through the roof. But people, you know, they. They don't listen to me the way they used to or want to listen to somebody else. I don't want to listen to me mm. the, way, the way I want to listen to somebody else. Like part of the reason I'm leaving this sounds kind of like, you know, so I'm being self, self-focused self or obsessive. But it's um, – I want to go to a church where somebody else is doing the stuff that I do. Like I don't want to go to a church that I'm the, that I'm the pastor of. Mm. Um, so I know that these uh, that, that other people are the same way. And like my social location mm. in 2020 mm. – is going to be different than the social location in 2000 of who I was, where I was, all this, like, mm. you know, and uh, so I just think it needs to be somebody, you know, I've often said mm. uh, there, there, there's only so much that a 53-year-old white man can provide in this community. You know, we should, we should really start considering the gifts that are available to us from a 51-year-old white man or something. I don't know, some, somebody, other than, somebody other than a 53-year-old white man, right? Um uh, which is sort of my, you know, mm. fun and also trying to stay and open to the fact that I, I'm not sure which of those should change the age, the the, the, the racial identity or the, the chosen gender identifier. Mm. So I, I don't know. So anyway, it's 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 seriously time. I have a friend named Tim Condors. He, he started a church called Emmaus Way and uh, in Raleigh. And he said something about a year ago to me when he was leaving after being there for a number of years. And I'm a big fan of Tim and a big fan of the church. And he said, you know, I've, I've always believed and held that um, it's better to leave three months too early mm. than 10 minutes too mm. late. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it, it hit me like, you know, like a scene out of the matrix. Yeah. And I was just like, mm-hmm. Oh, see, I, sure. I like I make matrix <laughs> references. And that's the point about the social occasion. Um, <laughs> Yeah, 1999. I mean, I still remember walking out of that movie, calling my friend Chris C and saying, I've just seen something that changed my life. You need to go right now. He goes, I just saw it too. And like, uh, you know, it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was mind blowing. 
call them on my flip phone. You know, I, 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 I worry that, you know, maybe I stayed two minutes too late. Uh, I, I don't know. But, but I don't live in guilt and I don't live in shame and making a mistake is not the worst thing in the world and doing something wrong is, mm-hmm. is just sort of, okay, well, then, I don't know, just do something else next time if you have a chance. Like I kind of yeah. don't care mm-hmm. about doing it wrong or breaking something or whatever. But but I think it could also be true, right? That yeah, maybe 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 should have left a, a while ago. But yeah. I, I don't know. So anyway, leaving now, and uh, I think we're going to hire somebody. I'm going to try to stay around our community because I love it. I need it. I I, I want to participate. We're going to see how that goes. I think it's totally doable and possible, and I hope it's that way. But you know, we'll 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 have to see if you know if I'm the kind of person and the new person in this role mm-hmm. and the rest of the community can sort of say, yeah, no, that's, mm-hmm. that's working. Okay. We'll have to see. We, we don't know. And, and like, like we take it super seriously what we're up to. Yeah. And at the same time, we're like, I mean, we're just doing the best we can trying to organize our lives into a community of goodness and love and hope and faith. And, you know, so, you know, there's a lot riding on it. And then, but I, I don't think I have a whole lot of ego in it. Like, who who am I going to be if I'm not the pastor of Solomon's Porch? Mm. I, I hope not. I, I worry that I won't have a people that I'm part of, like that I'll feel, I'll feel uh, mm. alone. That's yeah. mm. horrible. Uh, I'm an Enneagram 8, right? So, like, you know, that would be horrible. Mm. So, I don't know. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're up to. So what will you be doing? I know, I know. Um, even even prior to announcing this transition, you know, leading up to the eighteen to the twenty eighteen kind of midterm election cycle, I know you did a lot with uh, your organization, Vote Common Good, and uh, I, I believe at least at least via things that you've let out via social media and whatnot that you've talked about, you know, having the opportunity in this post Solomon's Porch season to focus a little bit more on Vote Common Good and the work you're doing there. So talk to us for. For a couple of minutes, especially you know we're we're at the precipice of a of another election year in twenty twenty. Uh, so, what is Vote Common Good? What do you uh, what do you hope to accomplish, or you know, what sort of dialogue to hope to create through that? And you know, where do you see that going in the next eighteen months? Yeah, Vote Common Good is an effort to try to implore, encourage, motivate religiously motivated people to use their vote for common good, and we think that that has on the ground conditions and demands on it, of which I think means mm. stopping the Trump administration and mm. a complicit Republican Party. I don't believe that my my faith or my citizenry, citizenship, re- uh, calls me to be a Democrat mm-hmm. or a Republican mm-hmm. or a Green Party member, or as I like to joke, certainly not a libertarian. My, my faith calls me to love God, to love yeah. my neighbor, to love my mm. enemy as I love myself. The conditions on the ground put a demand on those loves and ask me to behave in a certain way. And in this election cycle, as in 2018, it means um, helping people who are religiously motivated, especially white Christians in America, to recognize that their faith it does not call them to an allegiance to a, to a party. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, stopping the Trump administration is... Is just uh, I think it's I think it's a thing they mm-hmm. should do. But so, so what Vote Common Good says is, hey, you know what good is, do do the right thing, right? We're not trying to tell people what what good is. We're we're suggesting we we this is this is what we've concluded. This is what we're going to do, and mm-hmm. we'd love for you to join us. And some of that is just surprising to people that religiously motivated people or evangelicals like me are traveling the country, trying to recruit and enable people to be freed from the demands to be a Republican and to vote for Donald Trump. 
So we're super hopeful that that's uh, that that's what we're going to do. We started a year ago, fifteen months ago. Uh, it was birthed in a, a set of conversations where we were a lot of us of, of us who were together were Christian leaders. We realized we have to do something more than what we're doing right now. We were so traumatized by the level of support of people from the religious communities to support uh, Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, it just it was just shot. You just realized, mm-hmm. oh. All of those things that people said for all of that time, yeah. that was really conditional, you know, depending on depending on who was the who and the what's, uh, and just how easily people would would bow to, to systems mm-hmm. of power and to to the promise of power. So uh, we decided to do something. As my friend Tessa, who's a Solomon's Porch person, said, she said, "I grew up mm-hmm. in a family of mm-hmm. social activists," and my mom would say, "Sweetie, when you live in a time of social distress, mm-hmm. you don't do nothing; you do something." And uh, so, you know, our little motto is wake up, speak up, stand up. Or we're going to change it to wake up, speak up, act up, kind of like that. Um, and, and so we're just trying to uh, say out loud that thing that a lot of us are saying privately. Mm-hmm. You know, we condemn, a lot of us condemn Republican leaders for saying one thing in private and not saying anything publicly. And I felt convicted by that same, by that same modality, right? So I've dedicated a year mm-hmm. of my life in 2018 and yeah. uh, up until now and for the next year to try to do everything I can. So we, we're going to do an aggressive bus tour for 2020, a media campaign, we have a number of training events. Like we're just, we're just going all out to try to call the, 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 the faith community to do mm-hmm. its bit. Like yeah. we're a you know, we like to say like, greater things in Vote Common Good. We're a small hinge that we hope can open a big door. And we're just trying to do we're just trying to do our thing. So we're going to every state. We'll be in mm. every state by the end, yeah. starting January. And by the middle of April, we'll bend every state in the Union and the District of Columbia. And we will uh, then focus on the Electoral College states and the uh, six mm. states that sort of impact the Senate and try to mm, convince yeah. people that engagement in the political system is important and that religious people don't have to be tied to the Republican party. And then we'll see where it, where it goes mm-hmm. from there. You know, I, cause I feel like my, I feel like my fingerprints are on this stuff, right? Like it's really easy to say, Oh, I'm not the kind of religious leader that, 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 that you know, it's worth like, and I just think that's slicing the prosciutto a little bit too thin. I, I, I don't think we get to say, sure. Oh, you know, I, I, I sell books in the religious industry. I'm a, I, I'm a, I, I traffic in the, in the yeah. in the Christian subculture in this country, but you know, don't throw me in with so and so. Like, no, I, fair enough. Like, yep, yep. It's this is my industry. These are my people. This is the community that I've chosen to base my yeah uh, engagement in the world along with. And I'm going to speak up every opportunity I can mm-hmm. and say, uh, just just take as seriously the addressing of this issue as, as others. And boy, I mean, I hear it from people all the time who say, man, you just lost your bearings. Like, what are you doing doing this? Why are you so obsessed about Trump? Like, be a minister of the gospel and proclaim the, the truth of Jesus and don't get all tied up in all this nonsense. Like, you're just going to look petty in two years when all this is done. You're going to be like somebody squabbling over the price of a trading card. <sighs> What are you doing? Right? And it's like, oh, that, that, that could be true. But I'm going to do everything I can to make sure Donald Trump is not the president of the United States in January 2021. And it's interesting that you bring this up because, I, I mean, you know, conversations that we've had in our church recently is kind of like, you know, like, no, to, to your point of what you said a moment ago when you're kind of introducing all of this. Yeah. You know, so the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't necessarily in the abstract demand any sort of particular partisanship or party loyalty or anything of that sort, but it is inherently political. It involves the, 
you know, the power structures and the dynamics that order the lives of, of people in society and citizens. And so you can't, you know, it very much is a matter of privilege to assume that you can somehow just step outside of the realm of politics and outside of the realms of power structures and just kind of, no, we're just going to practice some form of, you know, abstract esoteric spirituality that has nothing to say about, you know, the material realities of people in the real world, so to speak. And so, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, the way that you frame this in so far as, you know, you know, kind of saying that the conditions on the ground dictate that as a, at least as a, as a Christian or as a person claiming allegiance mm-hmm. to the way of Jesus, yeah. that that in, you know, inherently demands a certain, a certain response. And that response is inherently political. Yeah. And, and I would even add to the political side specifically in this country, the way we handle our politics is via a representative form of democracy that's expressed through the act of voting, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a lot of people who want to sort of be political mm-hmm. without being yep. electoral, sure, sure. Yeah. right? Uh, and 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 I've just decided, no, no, no. I, yeah. you know, uh, God, God changes hearts; people mm-hmm. make laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. If we, if we want there to be different laws, uh, the best thing to do is not to pray that God would change the lawmaker's hearts. I think the best thing to do is yeah. just change the lawmaker. Yeah. And so, and, and that's not everybody's vantage point. It's not always been mine. It may not in the future be mine. I'm not. I'm not arguing for you know at all times, uh, all places reality here. Uh, I'm just saying right now for someone like me. Yeah. This really matters and I'm going to do it. And that's where it's similar to Solomon's Porch or it's similar to how I think about the afterlife or how I think about it. Uh, this book is like, mm. no, I think we're always living inside of a set of conditions and the call on mm. your life yeah. is always conditional. That's the, that's the roots. Of the, this is Jesus saying Sabbath was made to benefit humanity, not humanity to benefit the Sabbath structure, right? Like it's all supposed to be the circumstances mm-hmm. will show you what you ought to do, mm-hmm. uh, right? So this, this is the Christian teaching. This is the Christian gospel, mm-hmm. you know. So, and, and I think it's it's the it's the conditions yeah. that we have, and this this desire, this need to create some sort of an everlasting absolute, or worse yet, a principle that we operate our lives under. Like, oh, good grief, who wants to who wants to operate their lives under a set, a set of <laughs> principles? Like, operate your life. Uh, as an impassioned person informed mm-hmm. in so many ways mm-hmm. in every living moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. You're the most important part of you. Like, yeah. Show up. Uh, so. <laughs> right. So in that sense, you know, you know, we, we've been talking for a while. So this is maybe as we're, as we're kind of beginning to wrap things up, you know, kind of overlaying all of this has been, uh, you know, whether talking about solvent sports, talking about your new book, talking about vote common good, all of this has been a kind of a, multiple decades long engagement with the world broadly speaking of evangelicalism and and the three of us here we find ourselves in this kind of post evangelical space where there's something about the legacy of evangelicalism the aesthetic the the trajectory kind of some of the even some of the instincts and impulses of it that I think we still collectively cling to and see as valuable and meaningful. And yet there are certain tenets of it, certain legacies, certain trajectories related to it that we can't hold to anymore. And so we kind of find ourselves living in this tension. I mean, Doug, you and I were part of a conversation about a uh, year and a half ago, you know, where, where, where a group of kind of progressive, inclusive faith leaders were kind of debating precisely how Christian or how evangelical exactly are the sort of churches and faith communities that we're going to look to establish and plant and, and, and kind of kind of found, you know, are going to look relative to the sort of at least 
aesthetically, at least, you know, you know, as they came before and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, what I'm getting at is, is, you know, you're kind of at this unique vantage point where you've been, you've been doing this a long time and, 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 sure. and you have a, a certain wisdom, a certain, a certain perspective uh, mm-hmm. born out of experience that many of us uh, who are, who are maybe newer to the, to the, to the movement or to the collective or just to the impulse don't have. So where do you see kind of this, post or progressive evangelical space going into the coming years? I mean, where's all this going and, 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 and what do you think will happen? What do you hope will happen? Yeah. What, what I don't think is going to happen, which I thought was going to happen 20 years ago, is that the influence of the sociological expression of evangelicalism, because I, I view evangelicalism mm-hmm. as a sociological category, not a theological category. So the sociological expression of the thing that we call evangelicalism Mm-hmm. Is going to be around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can promise you that. Nineteen ninety-two, I was sitting in meetings saying, like, okay, this is going to be over by the new millennium, uh, and then you know, in two thousand, uh, you know, you're like, it's got to be over, and then you know, the the Bush years were the death rattle of the evangelical support, and mm-hmm. you know, it ain't going no. anywhere. So, so, so we better figure out what we're doing with it. And as it turns out, the benign neglect has been to just turn it over to the squatters. So a bunch of people moved into evangelicalism from fundamentalism and took it over. And uh, that was hardcore in the 1990s with all the purity culture stuff and these fundamentalist narratives that, you know, it's not like I'm, I wasn't raised in religion or anything. I got into it when I was 17. But in 1980s, early 1980s, evangelicalism separated itself from kind of classic fundamentalism pretty distinctly. And, you know, by the mid nineties, mm. the takeover was complete. It, it had become a fundamentalist thing with this weird, like women can't lead and sexual purity nonsense and like all this stuff, right? That, that a whole generation now of people who are adults are like, yeah, I grew up with that yep. stuff. That's evangelicalism. Like 1976, Jimmy Carter was on the cover of Time Magazine as mm-hmm. the year of the evangelical as an evangelical Democratic president, you know, and I like to say that, you know, in 1976, California was a firmly red state by electoral. It all voted all Republican mm. across everything. Mm. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical who was a president as a Democrat. And so um, and I think we're living in brackish waters. I think we're in a time now where that that shift totally happened, where evangelical is now syn- uh, synonymed for being a Republican. And California seems, you know, like it's the land of fruits and nuts to, to Republicans. Right. And this whole shift has happened, but I think there's another shift happening again, mm-hmm. and we're in this brackish mm-hmm. waters, right? If people don't know what that is, that's where the fresh water of a lake mm-hmm. meets the yeah. salt water of an ocean. We get this particular estuary that, that grows there, and we're trying to figure out what the variety is going to be that's going to that's going to live in that period. So I th- I think we're gonna we're gonna find ourselves in brackish waters here. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, to push this analogy even further, Donald Trump is the natural disaster, is the hurricane that has swirled up all this. The shoreline has changed and then we're going to have to figure out, you know, where where, where does all this land? But look, if we think walking away from from religion and walking away from uh, evangelicalism is going to fix it. It's not. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't walk away. People should walk away for all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons that they need right. to walk away, right? Uh, people, uh, my, my number one rule of life and spirituality is it should not be hazardous to your health. Mm-hmm. Right? So, Definitely. So, uh, first and foremost, you know, take care of yourself. Uh, so people should walk away for lots of reasons. But if we think walking away is just going to sort of solve it, or, or if we think the millennials are going to fix it, 
you know, as a 53 year old uh, who was three years old, you know, 50 years ago during Woodstock, I promise you the younger generation is not going to fix it. We are the younger generation 50 years later. I mean, Donald Trump is the summer of love generation. It, <laughs> it just drives me bananas when people are like, well, the millennial, because like I'm a Gen Xer and people said it about the Gen Xers and they said, it about, I mean, it, this generational nonsense is just going to kill us. Um, if we keep thinking, you know, that that's, that's what it's mm -hmm. going to be, you know? So uh, mm -hmm. are, now, now am I optimistic about the future? Well, well, yeah, but I'm not, you know, I think there's some, uh, there's some rocky ground we're going to have yeah, to walk over. Me too. Definitely to get to the other side of this brackish mm. water. So anyway, I think, I think there's, I think there's a lot of foot. So I just think if people, if someone sees themselves as a change agent, if they see themselves as an engagement person, if they see themselves as kind of wanting to be up, up and all that stuff. But part of the reason I love doing a bus tour uh, and that Vote Common Good is fundamentally a bus tour along with other things is mm -hmm. we're going to be driving a bus from January to November. Oh, wow. It's like, mm. hey, there's, there's literally a seat on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Climb aboard. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a living, breathing Spruce, Bruce Springsteen lyric. So uh, we just are trying to say, uh, climb aboard and, and let's, then let's do something about it. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. That's our, that's our hope. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, you know, you can make it, if you can, if anybody has, you know, managed to listen this entire time, they, they, they can probably piece together. I think people, People are at the center of the human experience. So, mm -hmm. so going off that specifically, as we're wrapping up here, we tend to ask a question every time, and I'm curious to hear your answer. Mm -hmm. Where you're at now in life, what does the word uh, salvation mean to you? Mm. I uh, I deleted on my computer. Um, I, I have a Mac, and I had some <laughs> things in the uh, in the iCloud drive, and I deleted the wrong files, and they're gone and it turns out when you delete them out of iCloud they're gone gone yeah hmm. there was no backup there was uh there was no save in those files no. uh, that's a that's become kind of an operative picture for me of what of what salvation means like are we keeping are we hmm. keeping around those things that need to be kept around hmm. and and i tend to believe in like a human being's relationship with god I, first of all i don't think anyone is saved from god right? you're not saved from the wrath of god yeah. so yeah so god god saves saves us from from ourselves but but to that degree i think i think the human experience is set on auto save you mm. know <laughs> so you don't have to do anything just don't, don't worry about it. it's gonna happen but but i think we do have to have to ask the question like what are we saving uh and what are we keeping around mm. and what are we making sure we continue to have access for mm. and there's a lot of things that should be saved mm. and a lot of things mm. that should be done away with and uh, mm. so that's okay. what I think awesome. about it. Awesome. So, Doug, where can people find out more about Vote for the Common Good? I'm assuming your book is available probably pretty much anywhere as far as to purchase. I've seen it on Amazon. Is there any other? Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Those other places, Barnes and Noble, other mm. bookie kinds of place. Um, yeah, you can f find it there. Uh, a website, DougPaget.com. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of gives you links to lots of things. Vote Common Good mm. is our organizational name and website. So VoteCommonGood.com. You know, I don't know. Just like Google Vote mm -hmm. Common Good, and you know, that's probably, it's probably <laughs> I think it's probably the easiest way. I, I don't know. Maybe even if somebody, you know, uh, some uh, people add the and for in our name all the time. I bet yeah. if you even search for like Vote for the Common Good or something, it, it might even come up. come up. 
Yeah, probably. Uh, I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I'm, I live at 6301 Peacedale Avenue in Edina, so they can find me here. <laughs> uh, people always say, so where can people find you? I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> right here. Home. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.